come to rescue you. Be strong, and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who fights for us. From the moment we were lost because of sin, you have come pursuing us, you have fought for us to bring about reconciliation in our relationship with you, to draw us into the inheritance that is ours as children of the King. And so we pray today that as we read this scripture and as we're reminded of these words of Job, that you are a God who fights for us still. And so, Lord, may we lean into that in faith today and hear the words to be strong. For it's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. When I was a young lad back when dinosaurs roamed the earth um, going to school, I had one rule that I tried to practice when it came to school, and that was find a desk as far away from the teacher as possible. Now, there was a rationale for that. My belief was that the closer you were to the teacher, the more visible you were, and the more visible you were, the more likely you were to get asked a question. And I knew in my mind that there were always three potential questions that would happen any time the teacher asked me a question. The first was the question the teacher actually asked. The second question was whether I would actually have the answer to that question. And the third question would be whether the vapor lock in my brain would actually unleash my ability to speak. And so my rule was to try and get as far away from the teacher as possible. When I was in high school, there was a moment in time when I broke my glasses. And I was sitting in math class, and the math class happened to be teach, taught by the uh, high school hockey coach. And uh, that was a man of some weight in the classroom um, because of his position with the hockey team. And he looked at me, squinting at the chalkboard, trying to see what he'd written. And he looked at me, and he said, McKinnon, where are your glasses? And I said, I broke them, sir. And he paused, and he kind of summed me up, and he said, McKinnon, you're either a fighter or a lover, and I don't take you for a fighter. Well, I didn't want to burst his illusion, but I wasn't a lover either. I was just one who was accident-prone, and I broke my glasses as I have every time I've broken my glasses, and that was by sitting on them. So I'm not a fighter. Not in that sense, anyways, and I guess I'm not much of a lover either, at least I wasn't in those days, because it was about three years after that that I'd have my first date, so I didn't fit into either one of those categories. But this passage of Scripture reminds us that as believers, we have a God who fights for us, but that we also are to fight for one another. And the context of this verse in particular, this verse 12, comes... In one of, the, one of Israel's victories, uh, one that wasn't looked for, 
Uh, As we've read, the Ammonite king died, his son became the new king, and David sent a delegation to try and form a peace bridge between these two groups. And when the delegation arrived with the Ammonites, the new king took some bad advice from his nobles who were subscribing to a conspiracy theory. And we always have to be very careful about what theories we subscribe to. But their theory was that David wasn't sending anybody in a peace delegation. He was sending spies with the idea that he would overthrow Ammonite and make them subservient to Israel. And so their advice was, don't treat them with hospitality. And what they did was they treated them to humiliation. Now, if you remember anything from the scriptures, you remember that for a Jew to cut his beard or to cut his hair had great significance, and that was one of the things the Ammonites did to this peace delegation. But the other thing they did was cut off half of their robes so that they were left naked, half naked, exposed. And if you remember anything from the Old Testament, you remember that nakedness and modesty were something that were highly, the modesty part of it was highly valued among the Jews. And to not be able to cover their nakedness was a grand humiliation. And so the Ammonites did what they could to humiliate them in two different ways. And when word got back to David, he essentially said to them, look, you stay in Jericho until your beards grow back. That's the first part of the humiliation. The second part is you'll get new clothing. That We can take care of that. But stay where you are until your beards have grown back. But understand that your humiliation is now ours. Now, he didn't put it that way, but his actions tell us that that the humiliation of the peace delegation now became the humiliation of Israel, and David took it personally. And what he begins to do is demonstrate that you shame one, you shame all of us, because we're a community. And so David summons together Job and the entire Israelite army, and he sends them off to, to confront the Ammonites. And as they go, Job, who is in command, notices that there's now some mercenary forces have joined the Ammonites, and they've got their work cut out for them. Its potential is there for Israel to have a grand defeat. They are in all likelihood outnumbered, and certainly they are surrounded. And so Job gives this word to his brother Abishai, Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And I want to focus on these words this morning for us as we think about the battle that God calls us to conduct as we fight for one another and for the cities of our God today in the context of a God who has fought for us. So Job says, be strong. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime somebody says, be strong to me, it's usually coming to me at a point in my life when I'm not feeling very strong. 
And to be honest, if somebody says, be strong to me, I'm probably going to respond with a bit of a chuckle and say to them, do you know who you're talking to? Because I don't consider myself a strong person. But Job says to Abishai, be strong. So let me just try and unpack this a little bit in terms of my own thinking about what this might mean for me and what it might mean for you. How about being strong of heart, to not give in to doubt or to self-doubt? And it's maybe more the self-doubt that becomes a casualty when we're trying to be strong in our lives because self-doubt is often the thing that contributes the most to our weakness. Not believing that we have the ability, not believing that we're good enough, strong enough, bright enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, tall enough, whatever, fill in the blank. That's the word the enemy always loves to whisper in our ears, that we're not enough. And so to be strong is to be strong of heart, to not give in to those self-doubting words, to not give in to fear. Now, let's recognize that fear has its place in our lives. When we are confronted with an event or circumstances where fear rises up, it's because the brain has recognized there is a challenge in front of us, and we adrenaline now kicks in so that we either turn to our flight mechanism or our fight mechanism. Those mechanisms are there for our protection. So fear has its place in our lives. But the problem with fear is it's never content with where it is. It always wants more territory in our lives. It always wants us to believe that there's more to be afraid of than there is. It always wants to keep us on the back burner, not the front burner. It always wants to keep us retreating, not going forward. And by faith and fellowship, we're able to keep fear in its place. And by faith, I mean by our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the bedrock of our lives, the one who fought for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who even now intercedes at the right hand of the Father. Are there any circumstances that we face that we cannot face with him? We're reminded once again from the word from 1 John, the perfect love casts out fear, and that is the love with which we have been loved, a love that casts out fear. And so being strong means being strong of heart that deals with our doubts, with, that deals with our fears, that refuses to listen to the lies of the enemy being whispered or showed it in our ears. It's about exercising trust in our Savior who died for us. So that's about being strong of heart. How about being strong of mind? When I think about being strong of mind, I think about leaning in to the preparations of our lives that have gone on before. And in particular, if we think about it in terms of Abishai and Job and the armies of Israel, they didn't show up on the battlefield as farmers and, and fishermen. They showed up as soldiers who had been trained and prepared for war. 
All the things that they had been taught, all the exercises they had gone through were preparation for a moment so that when the battle took place, they wouldn't have to go and look it up in the manual and see, well, what am I supposed to do now? They were ready. They were prepared so that they could lean into their training and then step into the battlefield. The same is true of athletes. We look at the athletes and and how smooth and, and silky they look in what they do and how easy they make their professions look. And when those of us who go out, go out and try it, we discover it is a very different animal. It's not as easy as they make it look. But why is it easy to them? Because of their preparation. That's why discipleship is important for us in the body of Christ. It's about preparing us for what we will see and do and confront in this world as witnesses, as representatives, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So that when we find ourselves in the middle of something, we don't say, oh, gee, what book did I read? What book do I go to now to try and figure out how to do here? It's too late at that point. That's why we do our discipleship now in preparation for what may come later. That's why we study our Bibles. That's why we read it devotionally. That's why we read it transformationally. For many years, I read my Bible informationally. And by that, I mean there's a lot of information in it that I wanted to glean. But I learned, what I learned way too late is what I really needed to be doing was reading it transformationally. In other words, reading it to meet the living Christ who transforms my life by my time with him and reading his word. That's part of our preparation. So is praying. And as we'll see going through this, prayer is going to be a focal point in how we fight for one another. That's why we fellowship. That's why we spend time in community, because we're stronger together. These are all parts of leaning into our preparation. When we prepare uh, people to go and serve uh, either in Africa or in diaspora ministries around the world among Africans, we spend an intentional amount of time trying to prepare people for the, the things that they will need to know and the things that will confront them on the mission field. We do it intentionally because by the time they get on the mission field, it's too late to teach them. So being strong means being strong of heart, it means being strong of mind, and it seems to me it means being strong of faith. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are four cylinders of faith. I've stolen this from Peter Wagner, who talked about four levels of faith. I like to think about it as a four-cylinder engine. My first car was a 1972 Super Beetle. For any of you who owned a Super Beetle or a Beetle of any description, you know that they were incredible cars that would go through any kind of weather, and the old ad was that they would float even. And my car, it was old when I bought it, and what I discovered was if I drove it for two hours, it changed its own oil. In other words, after two hours, I had to put a new quart of oil in because one was already gone. And so I never had to change the oil. I just kept replacing it. But I was with a friend one day, and, and the motor was running, and he put his foot up to one of the exhaust pipes, and he said, your car's not hitting on all engines. Well, I'm no mechanic. All I knew was you turn the ignition, the engine turns over, 
you let out the clutch, you drive away. But what I learned was cars don't drive optimally when they're not running on all four cylinders. So let me describe a four-cylinder engine of faith for you. The first cylinder is the cylinder of saving faith. That's the faith we exercise at that moment in our lives when we recognize that we are sinners estranged from God, that Jesus Christ has taken our sins on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, took the punishment that was ours to set us free so that now all that's left for us to do is to trust in the finished work that he did on the cross and say, Jesus, I believe in you. There's an ABC I often give at this point. The A is we all have something to admit, and that is we're sinners. That makes us like everybody else on the planet. We're all sinners. The B is we all need to believe. And we all will believe in something, But the thing we need to believe in is Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can save us from our sins. And the C is we all need to commit. We need to commit our lives to that Savior. We will commit our lives to all kinds of things, but the commitment that needs to come first is our commitment to Jesus Christ. And so that first cylinder of faith is about saving faith, that first faith that we exercise when we trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. The second cylinder of faith is sanctifying faith. That's the faith we exercise from that point forward as we begin to grow in our walk with Christ and our discipleship with him, as we begin to put down roots in the soil of faith and the soil of life with God. It's as we begin to grow in both our understanding of who God is and our understanding of ourselves and begin to expand both our hearts, our lives, and our knowledge base. So that second level of faith, sanctifying faith, is about growing And, of course, the fruit of the Spirit comes into play in this context in the development of Christ-like character within us. So you've got saving faith, you've got sanctifying faith. Now comes the third cylinder, which is a little bit more difficult, and that's stretching faith. And stretching faith is the faith we exercise when we begin to recognize the gifts that God has placed within us and begin to offer them back to him and our lives back to him in service of others. And we get stretched. We get put out of our comfort zone. Some people are are good at being intentional about placing themselves in uncomfortable situations to help themselves grow. I do it occasionally, but then I retreat. I'm not recommending my method of doing it. But it is to recognize that there is growth that is expected from us every day of our lives, every season of our lives. When we stop growing, we start dying. And so this level of faith is about being stretched allowing ourselves to be put in places that are uncomfortable maybe for us, but where God is able to use us, and you all know this as well as I do, when we do that, when we put ourselves in position to be used by God, the blessing that comes in afterward as a result far outweighs the discomfort that went before. 
And some of you have discovered or will discover that when you do that, when you exercise that stretching faith, there will come a moment when you will say to yourself, this was what God made me for. And then the final cylinder of faith is subduing faith. And that has to do with recognizing that we live in a world that is not just flesh and blood. There are spiritual realities that are working around around us. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 when he tells us there are principalities and powers of spiritual darkness that are at work in our world and that we then begin to take those seriously and begin to exercise subduing faith. So those are four cylinders of faith. And when I hear Job saying to Abishai, be strong, I hear him saying, be strong of heart and of mind and of faith. But then he also says, let us. And that is a community call. It's a call for us personally within the community of faith. It's not the royal we. It's not me waiting for somebody else to take up the cause. It's God speaking to me so that when God speaks to me and invites me to join him in what he's doing, the next move is on me. It's not on whoever's beside me. It's not on whoever's behind me. It's not on the person who's usually the first one to volunteer. It's on me. When God speaks to me, the next move is on me to join him in what he's doing. And so this word, these words, let us, are a, a communal invitation to each of us to be taken personally. It's God saying to us through Joab, it's up to us. It's up to us. It's all about being part of the solution. There was a student in a, a Filipino Bible school one time who got very dismayed about the state of the men's washrooms. And every time he walked in the washrooms, it just contributed to his irritation. And, and it just irritation began to grow and turn into agitation, and agitation began to turn into frustration. You know the cycle. And so he decided he'd do something about it one day. He went to the principal. And he complained to the principal about the state of the men's washrooms. And then he left. And he figured, okay, I've done my part now. The principal will send the janitor, who's obviously been negligent in his duties, and we'll get the solution to this, and I won't have to deal with this irritation every time I go to the men's washroom. Until the next time he went to the men's washroom. And he noticed they were cleaned. But he also noticed that the one who was cleaning them was the principal. Job says to Abishai, let us. Let's not wait for somebody else. Let's take our part of the responsibility right here, right now. And then he says, let us fight bravely. And fighting bravely is about that faith that we have, that we put into trust, put, uh, faith and trust that we put into action as we seek to engage in our world. It's faith and trust harnessed together for the benefit of others. And I think it's often born out of desperation at times, either in our lives personally or as a church. I once was part of a delegation that was sent in from a denominational district to visit a church that was um, on the death's door. And they were really being confronted with the question of whether they should shut their doors or whether they should develop a vision for their community that they could get behind and pursue with God's grace and blessing. 
Remarkably, they chose the latter. And that church, which sits in the middle of a cornfield outside of, or a hayfield outside of Uxbridge, is now a church of between three and 700 members because they got behind the vision, but desperation drove it. Fighting bravely is about recognizing that ministry is hard today. When I went to seminary, there was a defined understanding of what ministry would look like. Today, it is a logging road in front of us that needs to be cleared, smoothed, and opened up. Because we are now in a missionary encounter with our culture. The whole world has changed around us. And what we once did to be effective in the church now no longer seems to work. And we need to find new wineskins to be the people of God, to fight bravely for our people and for the cities of our God. And we fight bravely because of some basic convictions that are in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And the first basic conviction, you all know, it's this, is that people need Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we need to walk with them to to the cross. And I'm saying walk with them to the cross intentionally because I don't think it's enough for us anymore to point them, to tell them, I think we need to walk with them to show that we're engaged in their lives with them until they they come to that point where they see the need in their own lives to trust in Jesus as Savior. And so the first basic conviction is that people need Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The second conviction is very much like it. It's that we have a message of hope that this world needs. I have never lived in my lifetime and seen the level of unforgiveness that now exists in our world. Pity help it if you made a mistake 30 years ago because if somebody finds out about it today, you're done and over. There is no forgiveness and the culture around us anymore. There is no grace. And so is there a message and a ministry for us as the people of God as we try and fight for our people and for the cities of God? Yes, there's a message of hope that there is grace. There is forgiveness. There's a Savior who died for us, and because he forgave me, I can forgive you, and life can look very different. We don't have to carry the bitterness of unforgiveness. We can be free. And the third conviction is that we have a life of purpose, of significance and meaning that we need to model for this world that is so broken. And those are just the reasons for seeking to reach those who are without Christ. And we accept those challenges. We accept the work that is in front of us, the difficulties of doing ministry today, we grind it out because we believe they're worth fighting for. 
But then Job also says, for our people, let us fight bravely for our people. There is a reminder to us that there is some fighting that we do as the family of God. You heard mentioned this morning, people who are in need of prayer. That's one of the ways that we fight for each other. We get on our knees and we pray for breakthroughs in the people's lives, in their families, in their workplace. We pray for breakthroughs in our community and in our nation. We pray for breakthroughs in our world. That's one of the ways we fight bravely. I love David's reaction to the news that came back from the Ammonites because it it highlights for me that David understood the significance of shame and the shame that his fellows experienced. And what he essentially communicates is what the Ammonites did to that handful of men they did to all of Israel. And now all of Israel would respond accordingly. He's essentially saying, you did this to all of us, and now you deal with all of us. And there's a picture that comes to mind from the New Testament. Remember when Stephen was in his moments of having to stand up to all the religious judges of the day who were accusing him of blasphemy, There's this image that we're told about by Dr. Luke where in the middle of this uh, judgment that's happening on Stephen, Stephen looks up and what does he see? He sees Jesus standing. Now I want you to focus on that for a moment. Because whenever we hear of Jesus beside the right hand of the Father in the Scripture, how is he usually postured? He's seated. But in Acts, we're told that he's standing. And when Jesus stands up, it's because there is something going on that he is now reacting to and he's about to act upon in defense of his people. It's the same reason why when Saul is confronted on the Damascus road, Jesus' words to Saul are, why are you persecuting me? And you understand that for Saul, that was an incredible conundrum because the first question is, well, who are you? Because I don't remember ever doing anything to you. But what Jesus is communicating is what you have been doing to my people, you've been doing to me. And I take that seriously. Jesus stands for Stephen to fight for him. And that's the picture that's painted here in the Old Testament of people who fight bravely for other people, to help them grow, to nurture them, to soothe them when they need it, to help them stretch, to prepare them for the works of service that God's prepared for them. According to Ephesians 2, we're all masterpieces that God has created, and he's created us for works of service. So part of it is helping each other paint the masterpieces by the works of service God has prepared for us. We fight bravely by modeling the Christian life. Healthy churches come from healthy leaders who model healthy lives. It's not an accident. It's just like healthy families grow from healthy healthy parents who model what it is to be healthy. And when I talk about healthy, I'm not just talking about eating the right food and getting exercise. I'm talking about modeling emotional health as well. 
And I actually believe that part of the discipleship that God calls us to be in is preparation of our own lives that deals with our own souls and our own emotional lives so that we become more whole, we become healed of some of those old wounds in our lives that have driven so much dysfunction in our lives. You're not going to take those dysfunctions into heaven, so why not get prepared for heaven now by getting rid of the garbage now and begin to live more whole lives? And that's about modeling health for our families. Do you think that there's room in our world today for some models of health, emotionally, spiritually, even physically? And so we fight bravely for our people. We walk with them, helping them to take their next steps in their owning their own identity as children of God. Why do we fight? On the one hand, we fight so people will become the people of God. And on the other hand, we fight so that the people who are the people of God will keep their eyes on the standard who is Jesus. So we break down barriers, we overcome obstacles with spirit, spiritual weapons and with fruit of the Spirit. We do it for our generation and we do it for the next generation. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we're more enlightened, but because we once lived where they, once, they now live, without God and without hope in the world. We fight bravely. We have fought bravely through COVID for the last almost two years. I was listening to a leader in the Global Leadership Summit a couple of weeks ago, and he said, when we say we're still here, that's a word of testimony today. We're still here. We made it through. We fought through and we're still fighting. We're still here for each other. We're still here for our world to be ambassadors for Christ. And so as we learn to be the community of Christ, as we learn to be people of faith, we learn to grow and to fight for one another. And then Joel reminds us that part of this picture is to fight for the cities of our God. There's a wonderful picture in Jeremiah 29 where the exiles have been taken off into captivity. They're throwing an incredible pity party for themselves. Their captors are saying to them, sing to us the Lord's song. Now, I don't know about you, but when you go to work, if somebody says to you, will you sing as one of your worship songs, would you not understand that as an opportunity for witness? But Israel was so far down the pity party road that when the Babylonians said to them, sing to us the Lord's song, we've heard so much about it, it's all in Psalm 137, their response was, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But God was presenting with them an opportunity, an opportunity he had prepared specifically for them. And so in Jeremiah 29, while all the other prophets have been saying, don't unpack your suitcases because you're going home soon, Jeremiah says, not only unpack them, but you better build for yourselves houses, you better plant for yourself gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have children, let your children have children. And what he's saying is, settle down and be an influence where you are. Now, I have a theory. 
And the theory is because of the exiles in Babylon, and you remember that Daniel and his company were some of the exiles that were there who became people of influence within the culture. Because of the influence that those exiles finally made, when those wise men, remember they came from outside of Israel, looking for the king, they were so familiar with Israel's scriptures and Israel's God that they came looking. And so Jeremiah 29, I think, provides us an incredible missiology for the church today in living in a world that has become very hostile to the things of faith. And so we are called to be strong, to fight bravely for each other, for our church, for our neighbors, for our community, for our city. We're not here by coincidence. This church is not here by coincidence. God placed you and this church in this community for a reason, because there are people all around you who need to know who Jesus Christ is, who live in a world that is so broken and who are so hungry for something that is whole and who need you and me to be the communicators, the messengers of hope. Our call is to be strong and to fight bravely for our people and for the cities of our God. They're they're all action verbs, and here's God's promise to us as we take up that invitation. Job says to Abishai, the Lord will do what is good in in his sight. We are to be strong, to live out of our values from God's word, to live out of our core identity in Jesus Christ as children of God, that unshakable bedrock, to build a better world that we're living in right now by faith in Jesus Christ, by being a part of the rescuing of the lost, renewing, refreshing the saints, expressing compassion and grace and living the truth and modeling the gospel, and God's promise is that he will do what is right in his sight. And I read that as saying, we will do what we're responsible to do, and God will do what he's responsible to do. As we take responsibility for our own obedience, our own faithfulness, and the use of our gifts responding to his call, the results are then left in his hands to work out in our world. We fight because God fought for us and continues to fight for us. And he wants us to be fighters too, to fight for the people of God. People who around the world today suffer because of their faith in Christ. And he wants us to fight for the cities of our God. That's the challenge of ministry today, isn't it? to be strong, to fight bravely for our people and for the cities of God. May God increase our our faith and give us strength so that we can be strong for those around us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our knees buckle at the knowledge of what you went through to fight for us. You, Lord Jesus, bore the shame 
the guilt of the guilty ones you took. And you bore it with the weight of our sin on the cross of Calvary. And we can barely lift our eyes from the ground to look at you on the cross as that sin-bearer. But it is as that sin-bearer that you fought for us. You fought for us in your death and in your dying. And you fought for us when you rose from the grave. So the death would have no more hold over us. It would have no more sting. And we know that even now you continue to fight for us as you pray for us in heaven. For you continue that high priestly role of intercession. We are so grateful that you are the God who fights for us. Give us the faith and the strength to fight for each other, to fight for your people, and to fight for the cities of of our God, including the city we're in. In Jesus' name, amen.